This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Pulmonary function tests are extremely useful in both diagnosing and managing patients with respiratory disease. In addition to a medical history, physical exam, and imaging studies, they give us a great deal of information of the pulmonary physiology and help us understand why patients have various respiratory symptoms. However, there are quite a number of pulmonary function tests available to us, and which tests we should order can be somewhat confusing at times. Do we know when spirometry, lung volumes, or diffusion capacity will be useful for evaluating the various pulmonary conditions? Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Alexander Niven from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Mayo Clinic, and he'll provide answers to these questions and more as we discuss how to use pulmonary function tests effectively. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Alex, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today and discuss this, I think, an interesting topic. Thank you, Dr. Chutka. It's truly a pleasure to be here, and I uh, couldn't agree more about this being a fascinating topic. But then again, I would, I, I I would guess that you'd say that. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I mentioned, this is kind of like an extensive menu that we get. You know, do you want spirometry, diffusion capacity, lung volumes? Do you want fries with that? It's sometimes kind of overwhelming. So I'd like to start out really basic and ask you to summarize the various components of what make up pulmonary function tests and maybe when we should be thinking about requesting those for different conditions. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to do that. I guess I will apologize for my field up front for the emphasis that I think we place on respiratory physiology when we give you that big long laundry list of tests to try to order in your busy primary care clinic. So uh, let's break it down a little bit to think about the common tests that we reach for and what they're good for. By far and away, the bread and butter most common test that I think most primary care clinicians think about when they think about pulmonary function tests is spirometry, right? A spirometry is something that has been around since the mid 1800s. That was when Hutchinson first described vital capacity. We're particularly proud of our former lab director here, Bob Hyatt at Mayo, who is largely credited as the inventor of the flow volume loop. But spirometry basically provides you with flows and volumes over time. And probably its greatest use is to give us an idea of whether or not somebody has airflow obstruction, stuff that we would expect with either chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or asthma or subsets of those conditions, including conditions like bronchiectasis. One of the other things that we can often see with spirometry is a symmetric reduction of the forced vital capacity, FEV1 or both. And that can be a little bit more challenging to sort out because those findings can be associated with air trapping or true restrictive physiology due to a variety of different conditions. So when I'm faced with spirometry, which is abnormal and not clearly simple obstruction, so a normal FVC with a reduced FEV1 and a decreased ratio, I will often reach for lung volumes in that setting 
because long volumes will tell me if true restriction is present and then can also inform things like air trapping and things along those lines. The second test that I often think about in association with spirometry is lung volumes. We most often measure either using a body plethysmograph or a body box, where we close somebody into a box and measure the pressure and volume changes as they pant to estimate different lung volumes and capacities in the thorax. Or we can also do lung volumes using different gas dilution methods. The most common method nowadays is nitrogen washout. Generally, we think about lung volumes when we're worried about physiologic restriction. So something that is making the lungs small, either due to a parenchymal scarring process in the lungs or inflammation in the lungs, or deformity of the thoracic cage or weakness in the respiratory muscles. All of those things lung volumes are going to help us with because a low total lung capacity on lung volumes is kind of the definition of a restrictive process. One of the things that I think a lot of people have become very interested about over the course of the last decade or so is also the value that lung volumes can bring to patients with, say, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease who have dyspnea out of proportion to their airflow obstruction on spirometry. And there we know that reductions in inspiratory capacity, which is one of the measurements that we get on lung volumes, is directly correlated with exertional symptoms and findings of dynamic hyperinflation during exercise. So that's another helpful thing that I walk away from with lung volumes. Now, there's lots of patients that I see who have exertional dyspnea and often drop their oxygen saturations when you measure their SpO2 with a pulse ox in the clinic. And whenever I'm faced with that, or whenever I've got symptoms that again are out of proportion to the severity of abnormalities that I see on spirometry or lung volume testing, I'm always gonna think about a diffusing capacity in that situation. So diffusing capacity is basically a test that we use to measure the gas exchange in the lung and the ability for, in our case, we use carbon monoxide as a surrogate for oxygen diffusion across the alveolar capillary membrane. And that diffusing capacity can be reduced in a variety of different conditions, basically anything that causes ventilation or perfusion mismatch. And that can be on the lung side or on the heart side in terms of the multiple different causes of pulmonary hypertension that we face. And I guess it's probably worthwhile mentioning that if I see pulmonary function testing that has pretty normal looking spirometry and lung volumes with a dramatically reduced diffusing capacity, then I'm going to think about pulmonary hypertension more often than not in that setting. There's a variety of other tests that we can do to answer specialized questions in the lab. Sometimes you're faced with patients where you're worried about potentially muscle weakness. And the tests that we typically do use to look at respiratory muscle function in that setting is a maximum voluntary ventilation and maximal respiratory pressures. So maximum voluntary ventilation, we have people breathe hard and fast for 12 to 15 seconds and then extrapolate that for a minute. The reason why we do it for 12 to 15 seconds is people would pass out if we had them do that for a minute. And then the maximal respiratory pressures, we basically just have a pressure manometer and have people breathe in as hard as they can 
and blast out as hard as they can. Now, you can imagine those tests are very effort dependent. And so you have to look at those data with a little bit of a jaundiced eye, but they can be very helpful in terms of identifying folks who actually have muscle weakness as a cause of, say, restrictive abnormalities that you're seeing on your spirometry and your lung volumes. I think the other thing that's probably worthwhile mentioning is the variety of different exercise testing that we can do in the pulmonary function lab. The data is well established that resting measurements of lung and heart function can often underestimate the physiologic impairments that come along with exercise. And since most of our patients present to us with exercise-related symptoms of dyspnea and things along those lines when they come with thoracic complaints, I find that six-minute walk testing to objectively stratify exercise capacity and look at progress over time is very helpful for patients with, say, COPD or interstitial lung disease. And for those patients that just don't have a clear-cut explanation for the cause of their exercise limitation after common testing, or people who have multiple different medical conditions, let's face it, as internists, we face lots of people who present to us with multiple cardiopulmonary conditions and dyspnea. Formal cardiopulmonary exercise testing in that setting can really help to determine the overall exercise capacity what the primary limitation is and help guide both further diagnostic and management approaches. All right. Well, let's take a couple examples. I think two of the most common respiratory complaints patients bring to us as primary care providers, one is dyspnea and another is a persistent cough. So let's start with dyspnea. When, when I see a patient with dyspnea, I think of, you know, could this be cardiac, a bad pump, uh, hematologic, severe anemia, or respiratory. So let's say I've ruled out the first two, and now I'm thinking respiratory. What pulmonary function tests would help us best to look at a patient complaining of dyspnea? Yeah, no, fantastic question, and a common one that we all face in our clinic every day. When I approach selecting pulmonary function testing in, in, the, set, in the setting of a dyspneic patient, one of the things that I sort of start with is, is the pretest probability of the different conditions that may be contributing to that complaint. And a lot of that can be driven by the patient that's sitting right across from me, right? So if I'm looking at somebody who is young, potentially has an atopic diathesis, but otherwise doesn't have a whole lot of cardiopulmonary conditions documented in their chart, about 40% of the time that patient's gonna have asthma. Another 40% of the time they're gonna be deconditioned sad but true fact in American society today. And about 10 to 15% of the time, they're gonna have either psychogenic causes of dyspnea or potentially what we used to refer to as vocal cord dysfunction. Now I think the more popular term is inducible laryngeal obstruction. And so in that sort of setting, I'm gonna think about spirometry up front because if I'm worried about asthma and I document airflow obstruction, I can give a bronchodilator and if I see a large bronchodilator response, that's going to give me the diagnosis of asthma. And if the spirometry is normal at baseline, then I'm going to think about early bronchoprovocation challenge testing with something like methicoline, which is very helpful because it's very sensitive for the diagnosis of asthma. So a negative methicoline test provides a pretty high negative predictive value for asthma in most, not all, but most settings. 
And certainly if it's positive, you've got the diagnosis. I should mention that the American Thoracic Society just this year issued a new set of guidelines when it comes to the evaluation of patients with suspected or known asthma with an atopic diathesis, which actually recommends doing exhaled nitric oxide testing, at least initially, to help both confirm the diagnosis and potentially phenotype folks that have more of a TH2 phenotype, right? Because exhaled nitric oxide is something that we measure in the lab in exhaled breath. And that value is typically elevated in the setting of eosinophilic airway inflammation. So if it's elevated to begin with, it helps you to, to think that this is an eosinophilic airways disease, asthma, and also can be helpful in terms of looking at asthma control over time after you've instituted management. So that's how I'm going to approach a young patient who comes to me with dyspnea. And truthfully, if those initial tests are negative, I'll often put those folks through a cardiopulmonary exercise test early, simply because it helps me with a often difficult conversation that we have with folks in terms of deconditioning and, and the importance of cardiovascular conditioning as, as part of symptom control. And it's often helpful for me if I'm looking for a diagnosis of inducible laryngeal obstruction in somebody who develops those symptoms during exercise. Because at least in our lab, we can place a scope that actually directly looks at the vocal cords during exercise to make that diagnosis definitively. For an older adult who presents with dyspnea, which is the bread and butter, I think, of, of most internal medicine practices, unfortunately, the evaluation there is a little bit more complicated. We know that all comers who present with dyspnea, lung problems and heart problems are, are going to predominate the causes of those complaints. And when I think about the lung problems that are associated, most of this falls with the common epidemiology of the lung conditions we face. So obstructive lung disease here with a mix more of COPD with maybe a little bit of asthma overlap in the older population is gonna be most common. There's gonna be a small but significant percentage of individuals who are gonna have interstitial lung disease who often will have other associated findings on chest radiographs or cross-sectional imaging. And then also another small population of patients actually not so small when you think about the overlap between pulmonary and cardiac disease who have pulmonary hypertension as a significant contributing cause of their symptoms. I'm going to err on the side of doing what we would call complete pulmonary function testing here. So the spirometry with a bronchodilator, if obstructed, is going to give me an idea if there's airflow obstruction that goes along with COPD. If there is a symmetric reduction in the FVC and the FEV1 with a normal ratio, ordering those lung volumes up front is going to help me to understand right away if there's a potential restrictive process due to a decreased total lung capacity. And then because mixed causes of pulmonary hypertension are so common in folks with concomitant heart and lung disease, the diffusing capacity is going to help me to understand what the physiologic impact of those heart and lung abnormalities are in terms of gas exchange. So I'll do those things up front. And then what we combine in our lab, at least, is we do a step exercise with pulse oximetry that gives a, a rough estimation of what the oxygen saturation is doing during exercise to hopefully help save you a few minutes in the clinic in terms of not having to walk your patient around. 
In patients with asthma, they can be perfectly fine one minute and have significant obstructive symptoms the next. If you do pulmonary function tests on an asthmatic patient without symptoms, are all their tests normal? They often are, but not always. You know, I'll, I'll share an anecdote that just happened yesterday, actually, for a patient of my colleagues who was a, a high-performing athlete who was presenting with unexplained dyspnea. She had had pulmonary function testing elsewhere that was normal. He repeated the testing here, really, with plans to do a cardiopulmonary exercise test, which was the reason why I was involved. And go figure, she had significant airflow obstruction and a 26% response post-bronchodilator in terms of FUE1 improvement. So the reality is we've got lots of patients out there who've been living with asthma for a long period of time who have developed a bit of a blunted sensation in terms of their dyspnea symptoms and often will underestimate the severity of airflow obstruction that they face. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've been trying to design, and, and this is still a bit of a work in progress, is a bit of a results-driven protocol in the lab to shift some of the burden off the ordering provider. So if you're worried about asthma, you tell us that you're worried about asthma. We do the screening pulmonary function testing. If there's airflow obstruction, we give it a bronchodilator. If there's not airflow obstruction, we do a bronchoprovocation challenge. I think that's an ideal situation, but it's, I'm afraid, still a bit of a work in progress. Mm -hmm. There's always hoops to, to jump through when it comes to that sort of stuff. But if we have a patient that we're concerned might have asthma, it's really wise to request a methicoline challenge. Is that right? Yeah, I think that that's a good choice because there's clear contraindications to the administration of methicoline, and one of those is severe airflow obstruction. So if we do baseline spirometry on a patient and there's significant obstruction there, we're not going to give that patient methicoline. We're going to give a bronchodilator, and then you're going to get the answer regardless. Mm -hmm. And you use a bronchodilator to determine the degree of reversibility of their condition? Yeah, you know, and that's something that's probably worth digging into a little bit. Certainly when we talk about bronchodilator responsiveness, that is a challenging topic sort of filled with misnomers, right? When we look at a diagnosis of asthma, we look for somebody who has a compatible clinical syndrome. So an airways disease with waxing and waning, dyspnea, cough, maybe nighttime symptoms or exertional symptoms especially if those symptoms are associated with triggers like seasonal variation and things along those lines. That's what we're going to think about as an asthma syndrome. As a pulmonologist, I always like to combine that clinical diagnosis with objective testing. Number one, because it helps me to confirm the diagnosis. And number two, it helps me to classify the severity. So there, what I will think about is, again, screening spirometry. And if, it's, if there's airflow obstruction, we'll look for a bronchodilator response. Now, we've traditionally been taught that a, a positive or reversible airflow obstruction is really the term that the American Thoracic Society has used, is an increase of 200 cc's and 12% in either the FVC or the FEV1. That's been in place now for, gosh, you know, a decade and a half or more. The problem with those criteria is that it didn't really factor in the differences in lung function that can exist based on gender, height, and age. And so one of the things that is a new change that the Standards Committee from the American Thoracic Society and European Respiratory Society is recommending is that we calculate bronchodilator responsiveness differently. We look at the difference in the FEV1 or the FVC pre and post bronchodilator, 
But instead of dividing it by the baseline value, which is what we used to do, we divide it by the predicted value for FEV1 or FVC for that patient and then multiply by 100. It's super complicated to talk about on an audio podcast. We're actually changing our reports right now so it'll be automated in terms of how it displays. But by dividing by the predicted value rather than the absolute value, it helps us again to factor in those oh so important demographics that can really translate into important changes in terms of lung function. I hope that was clear. Sure, yeah. Now, at Mayo, we're quite spoiled in that we, uh, when we request pulmonary function test, we get the results back, not only with the volumes, all the numbers, but also a very nice interpretation of what happened. Is there any reason why primary care providers should really have some ability to interpret the pulmonary function test results without waiting for an uh, official interpretation? I'm certainly biased in that regard, but someone who still considers himself an internist at heart, in addition to a subspecialist, I always recognize the significant disadvantage to which I feel when I'm just reading somebody else's interpretation of a test, rather than looking at the test myself and understanding some of the subtleties that perhaps aren't captured in those interpretations. I guess because of that, my strong bias is that I do think that pulmonary function testing interpretation is kind of a core skill that primary care physicians should have. Number one, because quite honestly, many primary care physicians perform spirometry in their offices. And so if you perform it, I think it's really important, number one, to understand the technical standards, which for spirometry have changed quite significantly over the course of the last several years. And then also be able to interpret the quality of testing in addition to looking at the numbers. Because as we know, pulmonary function testing is entirely dependent on patient effort. And without maximal, acceptable, and repeatable efforts, really the data that we get is garbage in, garbage out. Right. So if we can't look at that and say, oh, I'm not, I don't feel comfortable you know, making a clinical decision based off these data, well, then we're potentially putting ourselves and our patients at a disservice. Let's finish up by asking you to discuss a little bit the guidelines established for the interpretation of pulmonary function tests. And I understand there's been some changes in these guidelines recently. It's interesting. There's been a lot of changes in the field of pulmonary function testing over the course of just the last three years that I think have been understandably overshadowed by everything that we've been dealing with with the COVID-19 pandemic. But there are a variety of new technical standards that have been published, again, by this ATS ERS Standards Committee for the performance of spirometry. And then uh, in December of 2021 was when the new guidelines for interpretation were released by that same Standards Committee. And there's actually quite a few differences. I suspect that uh, many labs are, are still sort of reviewing those changes and talking about how they are going to translate those changes into their clinical practice. But these are things that if they're not already in your institution, I think will be coming in the not so distant future. Probably the first thing that's worthwhile just mentioning is the use of reference values, which has been a, a hot topic over the course of the last couple of years, because so many people have recognized the challenges that we face with pulmonary function testing when it comes to finding an appropriate reference population to compare your patient's values 
with predicted or expected lung function for somebody of that age, height, and gender. You notice I, I didn't talk about race or ancestral origin is the term that we're talking about, because I think over time we've recognized that expecting somebody to have different lung function based on the color of their skin is inherently problematic and overly simplified concept. There's lots of different factors that go into lung function in addition to those core things, again, age, height, and gender, nutrition, socioeconomic status, and setting, not to mention the increasing complexity that we are understanding in terms of genetic determinants that, that drive lung function. One of the things that I think many labs are transitioning to is a set of reference equations that have been issued by the Global Lung Initiative, which is a group of investigators who've basically gone back and collected together all the data from the high quality reference sets out there, put them together into much better reference sets than we've had before, and offer those as a standardized way of looking at lung function across the population. Now, there's some emerging data in terms of looking at what they call a, it's the GLI global equations, which are basically race agnostic equations that I think is going to generate a lot of interest in the in the coming years. That that paper was just published within the last several months, and I think that that's going to be really important. What's important for primary care physicians, though, is if you're seeing a patient that you've ordered pulmonary function tests on before, and you get a new test back that has different values. You know, somebody who was normal before who now all of a sudden is just a little bit abnormal, drops below the lower limit of normal, I would really recommend stopping and questioning that before you move on to make clinical decisions. Because sometimes those nasty pulmonary function uh, lab directors like myself are changing those reference values behind the scenes and not communicating as clearly as we should. I think it just underlines the fact that mild abnormalities on pulmonary function tests are mild and need to be interpreted within a clinical context. The second big thing that I think many people are still trying to translate into simple terms when it comes to interpretation is we're moving away from percent predicted values for cut points for severity and instead using Z-scores. Now, I think for anybody who's paid attention to the guidelines and recommendations out there, there's an obvious reason why we're moving away from percent predicted values is because all these big professional societies all recommended different cut points. And that was just kind of a nightmare. So Z-scores are really, we all know what Z-scores are based on bone mineral density testing and things along those lines, have been much more clearly correlated with mortality when it comes to changes in lung function, which is the reason why we're starting to use those as cut points for mild, moderate, and severe abnormalities that we see in terms of physiologic impairment. I've already talked about the changes in bronchodilator responsiveness, so I'm, I'm not going to pickle everybody's brain by trying to talk about a formula verbally again. I think those are kind of the big things that we're seeing in terms of differences that I think would, would hit a primary care physician's desk and cause you to, to pause for a minute or two. Okay. Well, Alex, you've given us a lot of information. Can you kind of summarize our discussion on pulmonary function tests with maybe two or three key points? Sure. I think you've illustrated with your dyspnea patients just how common it is that we face problems in primary care practice 
that require pulmonary function testing. And so I appreciate the opportunity to review the common types of pulmonary function testing that we do and when you might think about ordering them. And again, when I'm faced with a more complex patient, the vast majority of the time erring towards a more complete set of pulmonary function testing is gonna make more sense as opposed to a, a more straightforward or single problem patient, I'm gonna think much more about targeted testing based on the underlying pretest clinical suspicion for a diagnosis. Being aware that there's been a lot of changes that are evolving in the world of pulmonary function testing and at least recognizing the potential clinical implications of that to your patient when it comes to changing reference values or changing interpretation standards is really important. And certainly if you happen to do office spirometry in your clinic, digging a little bit into the changes that the standards committee has made with testing performance over the course of the last couple of years is gonna be really important to make, make sure that you're number one current and number two, continuing to deliver quality results that meet standards for interpretation and then clinical decision-making. We've been discussing how to use pulmonary function tests effectively with Dr. Alexander Niven from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. Alex, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. I know I've uh, come away with some uh, new insights about how to order pulmonary function tests. Well, it's an honor and privilege to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.